My first book is titled The Bad Guys Won, because at the end of the 1986 World Series, after the Mets beat the Red Sox, New York manager Davey Johnson was asked whether he thought people would appreciate his ball club. No, he said, because the bad guys won. Title born. Only it almost wasn't. Right around the time when the book was going to press, an editor actually switched the title to The Wild Bunch. I like it more, he said. It's catchy. I was about 30 at the time, inexperienced in publishing, just hoping to make it. If you change the name, I said, I'll never write for you again. Sometimes, even if it's small, you have to stand for something. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Heather Cox Richardson, the Boston College history professor whose weekly writing is serving to keep me This is episode number 158, Let's Sing and Yang. Uh, all right, Heather, we were just talking and you have about 600,000 followers, which is insane. It's a huge number and you're not a big marketer and you're not out there putting ads on Facebook and you're not, people are clearly sort of listening to you and hungering for information. And um, we live in these super weird, crazy times that I, I'm struggling to understand and, and grasp. Um, what are people hungering for? Like, what do, you, what do you feel like people are turning to you for? I think it's really important to remember that what I'm bringing to the table is really translation. Uh, people keep calling me a reporter. I am not a reporter. I am reading what is out there in the media and what's being distributed from the government. I use a lot of government documents. And I'm simply telling ordinary Americans what's in them. So I think people are looking, first of all, for a better handle, a factual handle on what's actually happening in America. But I think the more important piece than that even is a community. People are looking for a community based in a sense of principle, a sense that somebody has a handle on what, um, what America should stand for and perhaps how to get back to that. And, and really what I do is I translate the news for that community. Um, they ask me questions and I answer them. That's, I don't bring a lot to the table. It's more them creating uh, a vacuum that, that I step into. This morning I wake up and on Twitter, the hashtag Joe Biden is a racist is trending. And it seems like for someone like you, it must be very frustrating that so many people, this is how they're getting their information. Hashtags, video snippets, bots planning information on social media and it, you know, going viral. I don't know how you don't lose your mind. How is this not just driving you batshit crazy? Well, I think the historical perspective really helps because I can look at things like hashtag Joe Biden is a racist or whatever, or the latest thing that Trump has done. And yeah, I mean, I look at that and I get upset or whatever, but I recognize that it, I always try and look at it like if I were writing this in a history book in a hundred years, what would jump out and what wouldn't? And, you know, a, a hashtag that's going to last for 30 seconds, you know, it, people get hot under the collar about it now, but it's not gonna, they're not going to remember it in a week. The bigger things are where you see something, and this I think also is where history comes in, where I see something happen and it might not get a lot of attention among other people. But I can look at that and say, ooh, as a historian, 
I know that's really important because what I'm seeing here is a struggle within the, between the executive branch and Congress that's going to play out in a certain way, or I'm seeing us back away from treaties that matter. And those, you know, the historical perspective and having written so many books on history, on political history, and on economic history, I can look at something and say, this, that nobody else is paying attention to, is going to show up in the history books. But this, it's getting so much attention right now, eh, maybe not so important. So it helps to ground me as well to have to go through things and look at them with a historical perspective, as it does for my readers. The question I keep talking about with my kids and my wife um, in this isolation is, 100 years from now, do we look back at this all and think, wow, that was sort of the end of democracy and a shifting of America, a permanent shifting of America to some authoritarian-esque governmental system? Or do we look back in the way maybe we look back at and Andrew Jackson, even Bill Clinton's impeachment? I don't know, little slivers of history where we think, God, that was a really screwed up time in history and we found our way through it. And you want me to give you the answer? I do. I'd love, to have, I'd love to have the answer for you because that's the real question, isn't it? Are we going to go full-fledged fascism or are we going to reclaim American democracy? That is exactly what's on the table right now. The one thing I would say that the, you asked how I survive hashtags. That's less of a deal for me than surviving the number of people who say the sky has fallen, we're all doomed. You know, maybe, maybe we are. But that bell hasn't rung yet. We still have the ability to change the future. And it frustrates me when people say, oh, it's all over. You know, there's nothing we can do. The bad guys have won. Um, because this is the moment when we have to step forward and do something. And one of the pieces that I wrote that, um, and I actually write, and I shouldn't pick on that one. Um, a, a lot of pieces I write talk about how people make decisions on a daily basis that changes the future. And they're ordinary people who make those decisions. And an awful lot of coming up with a good outcome is making the right decisions as an individual in your life. Deciding, for example, to join the wax during World War II. You know, when people did that in 1943, they didn't know Hitler was going to lose. You know, decisions to, to, um, to fight in the Civil War or Fannie Lou Hamer deciding that she wasn't going to take it any longer. Those were not people who were anointed by some higher power, either within political history or uh, American democracy or divine inspiration. They were just people who did the right thing for what was right in front of them. And that's sort of, I think, what I'm trying to do for people is to translate the news, but also say you are not powerless. You know, while you are drawing breath, you can change the world. And that's, um, I really believe that, having studied history. When did this bump come for you? And what, what I mean is, you, you were, you know, you've written a ton, you have a lot, you have, you have a good number of books, uh, you're a professor at Boston College. This may sound really silly, when did you feel, when did you start seeing a shift where a broader audience was starting to listen to you, to read your posts, to subscribe to your newsletter? Like, what actually caused that for you? Okay, so, so this, I think, is a really interesting moment in American history right now and in media right now, because, you know, as you say, I was a fairly well-known um, political historian. I wrote a, for a lot for major newspapers, you know, as, as one does when one gets to be a senior professor. And, um, and a, face, a forward-facing professor, you know, I did a lot of popular lectures and all that. But, 
But the, what you're talking about happened um, really on September 15th of last year. And what happened was I had a professional presence on Facebook. I had a professional Facebook page. I wrote on it about once a, once a, uh, um, once a week I tried to, to do. And I talked about modern day stuff or I wrote essays. I did something simply for the about 22,000, 23,000 people who followed me. But on September 15th, I got stung by a yellow jacket and I'm allergic to them and I didn't have my EpiPen. So I sat, you know, near a phone to see if I was going to have a bad reaction to it. And I hadn't written that week on Facebook. So I did. I hadn't actually hadn't written for a couple of weeks. So I did. I sat down and wrote a post about something I had seen in the news on that Friday the 13th. And that was Adam Schiff writing a letter to the acting director of national intelligence saying, we know you've got a whistleblower complaint that you're supposed to hand over by law and you're not giving it to us. We can only assume that it involves major people hand the there wasn't an expletive in the letter, but it sure felt like there should have been thing over. And I recognized that was a really big deal. Like I say, a lot of that stuff flies under the radar screen for a lot of media people because, you know, there's just so much coming at you all the time. I looked at that and said, that is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, which is one of the major seats in Congress, accusing a member of the executive branch of breaking an explicit law. Um, so, which is different than we don't like emoluments kind of stuff. So I wrote about that and a lot of people wrote and asked me questions and my rule was never to write more than once a week because I figured people would get bored. But I thought, oh, all right, I'll go ahead and answer these questions. And so I think I wrote again on the 17th of September and that was it. I've written every single night since um, simply because so many people were jumping onto you know, my explanations of who these people were and why these things mattered and, and what the chains of command were and what the implications were. And I think it was just a moment when people were really interested in how our government really works and felt that they had not been given the basic structures in their schooling or through the media. And they liked to have someone explain to them, for example, what an executive order was or who the Senate uh, intelligence committee was or the relationship between certain senators and representatives. So that's the moment when, when what had been a pretty um, standard, if you will, uh, professional um, academic life became this forward looking um, uh, commentator on American culture. The, the, one of the things that struck me about Donald Trump, um, so I wrote a book years and years ago about a baseball player named Barry Bonds. And I don't know, how, I don't know if you're, are you a sports fan? And, Enough that I know who Barry Bonds okay. is. Yeah. So um, Barry Bonds was a really interesting guy in that he's the first person I ever saw in organized sports who just walked through the norms. Like, Barry, you can't do that. Nah, fuck you, I'm doing it. Like, Barry, you can't do that. I'm doing it. Like, everything, the San Francisco... The San Francisco Giants basically set up a system of how players are supposed to behave, who they engage with, how they engage. And he just decided, no, I'm walking right through them. I don't care. I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you. And I'm not listening to you. And it was one of the most jarring. It was like the people working for the Giants, it, it didn't compute and they didn't know how to deal with it. And when I see Donald Trump and I see the Trump administration, it has reminded me from the beginning of Barry Bonds, where they just sort of walk through. They just walk through. And we need this from you. No, we need your taxes. No, we need. And I wonder, um, has this shown, has he shown that you can just walk through government, that these norms we have set up, that maybe they don't really matter if you just decide if someone is so diabolical or so whatever, self-absorbed, I don't know what the word would be, 
that he or she just decides, no, I'm walking through the American government doing exactly what I want? Or is that an overly simplistic view of what is happening here? Well, I think that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, he's a classic narcissist, you know, that's, and, and their go-to mode is, um, you're not the boss of me. I can do anything I want. But the piece that, that makes Trump as successful at doing that as he is, is that he has a compliant Republican backing in, in the Senate. Like if the senators were really doing what they were supposed to be doing, he could not get away with any of this. And, you know, this whole firing, for example, of all the inspectors general, um, he's not allowed to do that. I mean, he has to give 30 days notice and Congress gets to weigh in. And if indeed it appears that uh, a president is trying to get rid of an inspector general for corrupt reasons, the Senate and the, and the House are supposed to stop that. And, the you know, in the Senate right now, uh, Chuck Grassley is occasionally saying, you're not supposed to do that. Please give us some documents. But they're not stopping him. And that, I think, uh, when, uh, when this whole moment ends, I think we're going to see a number of things. One of them is going to be a lot of what we have accepted as norms are going to become placed into law. The Congress is actually going to step up and say, you have to release your taxes. You have to do these certain things. So that's going to be one thing that's going to change. Um, but I also think that there is going to have to be some pretty profound reworking of our understanding of the checks and balances. Uh, because again, when the founders put the system together, it never occurred to them that there would be within uh, either House of Congress a group of people who were simply willing to lay, roll over and play dead, which is what they're doing now. And that's uh, a bigger problem with our democracy than I think anybody recognized. And that's something else that's got to be on the table because it's what's letting him get away with exactly what you say. I had Joe Walsh on this podcast. Joe Walsh, the former congressman from Illinois. And he said to me, the day Donald Trump loses this election, Marco Rubio, Rubio celebrates, Ted Cruz celebrates, not in public, but they don't like this either. They're just terrified. Is there any precedence for rolling over for a president? Why is this happening? Well, I think it's a really good question. And people do, of course, roll over for presidents, but never, ever to this degree. And I think it's all of what you say, that they do like the judges, they do like the, the deregulation and the turning the privatization of so much of our public services right now. And they're afraid of the tweeting. Um, but I also think it's about bullying. You know, people tend to line up behind bullies because they're cowards. And one of the things that interests me about this moment, a friend of mine says, um, he says, you know, and, and I, I can't tell the story the way he does because he knew all the characters involved, but he said, you know, the trick is that you never want to, um, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a bully, what you wanna do is you want to bully, you know, the football players, the big guys, the A, the alpha males, because they'll they'll bluster and they'll complain at first, but basically they'll all roll over and do whatever you say. But the people you really don't want to bully are the nerds, because the nerds will take it and take it and take it and take it, and then one day they're going to come for you with an AK-47. And that um, kind of reminds me of this moment, because in fact, so many people who should be standing up to him are not, and everyone's looking and going, go, looking at them, going, "Why are you not standing up to them?" And then you have, you know, the Secretary of State of, of Michigan, say, sort of calling him out on Twitter, and not to say that's not an important position, of course it is, but she is not a senator. 
and she's the one who's gone after him. And you get so many women, uh, especially, but the female journalists who are calling him out, uh, while so many uh, other journalists are simply nodding and going along with it. And I sort of feel like we're in a moment that looks a lot like the Revenge of the Nerds, where people are saying, no, we finally have had enough. You've bullied enough people, and we're going to stand up to you. So that's sort of the psychological dynamic that looks like to me. I will say it's going to be interesting to see if the Marco Rubio's, as you say, if those people are able to reclaim their careers, because as I say, either we're going to go full fascist and they're going to go along with the game, or um, we're going to go the other direction. And I think an awful lot of people are going to be tainted by this administration. So my big issue with Donald Trump, like my number one issue as far as like the thing that started me in just really anger is I'm a New Yorker, 9-11, a very deep connection. He has lied repeatedly about 9-11, about being there, about helping, about sending 100 of his men to help, about giving $10,000 to the 9-11 fund, all just lies, lies across the board. And I've had this debate with Trump military supporters repeatedly, like, not all right, this guy has five deferments, blah, blah, blah. He kicked homeless veterans off the block in front of Trump Tower, but he lied about 9-11 repeatedly, and there's no... And these guys keep standing up for him. These military lifers. Well, well, you have to, you know, blah. And it's almost like they go, they, they buy the bluster. It is the smaller people who don't. Well, there's a dynamic that, that um, actually was identified immediately after, and probably before that too, but immediately after World War II, when people like Eric Hoffer were trying to figure out how you get the rise of a dictator. And everyone was all tied up in knots trying to figure out the psychology behind Hitler and Mussolini. And, and Hoffer said, who cares? Every generation has Hitlers and Mussolinis, and they don't come to power. The question that you need to look for is, how do you create a population that is willing to follow somebody like that? And that, to me, looks an awful lot, the, what he discovered looks a lot like the psychology of abuse, of, um, of violent abuse. And, and what, what Hoffer argued and what people who study domestic abuse, for example, argue is that um, there is a psychological component to this, that you kind of uh, hand over your... Um, your morality, if you will, to a leader. And once you have done that, you have to continue to support him because uh, you, are you are complicit in the stuff that they have already done. Right. So what I always tell people who ask me, you know, what do I do about the, the um, you know, my uncle who's a Trump supporter or my dad or my husband or whatever. And I say, you know, think of him like your friend who's in an abusive relationship. You know, the more you say, um, you're, you know, this, this person is treating you badly, this is not okay, the tighter they cling. You know, well, like you just said, well, but, you know, she made dinner the other night. Well, but she's a good mom. Well, but he fixes the car. Right. Um, that basically you can't hit it head on. You have to say, this is not what, what I believe is a healthy relationship. This is what I want, you know, what I see as being a healthy model for a relationship. And if you take that, again, out of the domestic realm and the psychological realm into the realm of Hoffer, who was looking at much larger societal pa patterns in society, but they do mirror that same psychological dynamic within a family, for example, or within a relationship. If you go back to the larger scale, um, 
you know, he, he identifies strongly how what you get is a mass movement of people who are willing to follow somebody who tells them that their lives suck because of those people over there and who those people are doesn't matter at all. And that as they, in, in, they sort of turn against their human instincts to abuse those people over there, the tighter that they have to cling to that dictator in order to excuse what they have already done. The number of people who say, oh yeah, shoot, I shouldn't have gone and beaten up that homeless guy and that reflects on me, not on him. You know, some people do it, but that's a really hard psychological thing to do to say, yeah, I was really wrong and I did really horrible things. It's easier to say, no, I hurt those people because they deserved it. And the more I hurt them, the more I have to convince myself that they deserved it. So I think that there is... Um, this weird psychological dynamic going on in American society today. And one, by the way, that I think has uh, contributed to the fact so many women are speaking up because most women have had to experience a relationship like that at the workplace, at school, in their families, whatever. And they see it far more clearly than men do. I like the old Mark Twain quote, it's easier to force someone than to convince them they've been fooled. And I just think there are a lot of people who maybe have mixed feelings about Trump, but to admit that they were wrong is, is a very difficult thing to do. So it's easier to double down than to say, yeah, you know what, he is awful. Well, that's why this coronavirus is going to be so interesting is because if you were in 100% for him, you have gone along with the idea that it's a hoax that is being pushed by the Democrats so he's not reelected, which you can do over, you know, the economy or over, you know, immigration or whatever. But COVID-19 is actually killing people. And it's killing people in his demographic increasingly these days. And, you know, I sit here and I wonder, do you continue to say, yes, he's right and this is a hoax when you've lost your parents? And, and you know, like, like, how do you psychologically do that? I'm sure some people will, but I think an awful lot of people will be like, hey, hang on a second here. It was okay when you were talking about them, but now you're talking about us. And you can see that, of course, with his dropping numbers in Florida, where elderly people are turning against him now. I just, I'm worried because you are, you see the political mechanisms going on. It, they're blaming the world, the WHO, they're blaming China specifically. It's not our fault as a way of shifting the blame. And I, I am a little worried that that works. Well, I think it does work for a certain percentage of the population. The question is, are they going to be enough to continue to determine our politics? And I actually worry a lot less about the people themselves than I do about the manipulation of our media and I do about the manipulation of the mechanics of our elections. So, you know, right now we haven't really had an accurately, uh, an accurate reflection of American will in our uh, political system now for decades. And, you know, are we in a place where it's going to be too late to turn that around? That's really the question we're at right now. Before we continue with two writers slinging in, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey who just finished reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. So I have a question. If Malcolm X were alive today, what jersey would he get from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise? He wouldn't get any. Oh, I get it. Malcolm X, Mr. Big Shot, thinks he's too good for 503 Sports jerseys, even though they're handcrafted, reasonably priced, and feature all sorts of throwback leagues. It's not that. Yeah, I bet he doesn't like the Denver gold, all because they had Vince Evans at quarterback. Why is Malcolm X blaming their passing game on Vince Evans? He was a nice guy. Dad. No, no. Malcolm X is too good for a Steve Young LA Express jersey. Steve Young is in a Pro Football Hall of Fame. Is Malcolm X in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Dad, Dad, calm down. It has nothing to do with any of that. Really? Yeah, relax. Malcolm X has very sensitive skin. 
So if you went to 503-sports.com and ordered one of their fabulous jerseys, the fabric would have to be denim, or else you'd break out in awful hives. Oh, why didn't you just say so? How, um, how disappointed are you in the overall coverage of this administration? Um, how do, well, I'm not going to put it on a scale. It concerns me. <laughs> I understand the problem with the media, by the way, because, of course, since we got the rise of independent media, the idea has been that you simply present the facts and let people decide. And people like, Joe, like Donald Trump, but he learned it from Joe McCarthy through Roy Cohn, understand that the way you manipulate the media is you just say incredibly outrageous things and the media presents it. And by the time anybody steps forward to say, oh, that didn't really happen, people have forgotten it. It's a, it's, a, it's a propaganda technique that works incredibly well. You just throw stuff at the wall and people remember that. They don't remember the corrections that come later. Joe McCarthy did it. Ronald Reagan did it. You know, to some degree, Republicans have done it ever since. But it does concern me the degree to which the media has not recognized that it's being manipulated that way. And I understand the problem. Like, what do you do? Say, in a headline, the president lied again, which was a big discussion, if you remember, in 2017. Do we use the word lie? Um, and certain outlets decided they couldn't use the word lie because that implied he knew he wasn't telling the truth and it wasn't clear he knew he wasn't telling the truth. But right now, unless you're paying really close attention, it's very difficult to tell what's real and what isn't. And, um, and I don't think the media is accurately pointing out to people what is real and what is not and what is simply propaganda that's being shared, not simply by the president, but, but by his supporters in Congress. For example, the new attempt to investigate uh, Hunter Biden in the Senate. I mean, that's just obscene. That's just obscene. But what made the news was, you know, Senate opens investigation into Hunter Biden. It didn't say uh, once again, for the yet another time since 2016, the Republican Party is attempting to affect political support by announcing an illegitimate investigation, which is by now is such an obvious pattern, you'd think somebody would have identified it rather than simply saying, oh, wow, breathlessly, they're investigating Hunter Biden. I feel like too often we in the media are, uh, we're, we're cats chasing a light. Like um, the other day when, when Megyn Kelly was going to have Tara Reid, the big Tara Reid interview, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. We are in the middle of a pandemic and people are dying every day. And I just thought this actually represented everything wrong with modern media, which is Megyn Kelly putting out teasers, nonstop teasers for this big interview. And here's a teaser. Here's a teaser. Oh, you need the, the big interview, the big interview. And we're just chasing it around. We're just chasing it. And it freaking is really driving me insane, this inability to stay focused on anything in the media. Well, you know, you, you are chasing stories for sure because you're always looking for the new thing. I think the harder thing to do is that, um, as you know, to be a good journalist, you have to really, really, really know your subject. And we've cut back so on paying people in the media and on having really deep um, reporting desks that we don't have the ability really to, to have the kind of minds who can dig into stuff. And I see this a lot uh, when I do interviews, especially with uh, reporters from, from England. You know, they, they really, really know their material and they can do things like call you up and say, I'm going to do a story in a month on X and I want to really get into this. So let's talk about the basics of this and then give me a reading list. Well, you know, American journalists simply can't do that at all. And sometimes the people who get assigned a story know so little about it in one very, very um, shocking interview to me 
and I won't mention the publication, I got to sit and explain the three branches of government to a reporter who was dealing with a political story. Right. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't know if this is actually a good thing. Maybe I should just let this person twist in the wind because uh, this is really a problem. You wrote a piece uh, Wednesday, today's Friday, so a couple of days ago. And uh, I just want to read a little bit and then I want to talk about it. That's okay. You wrote, um, There's one, there was one vignette today that captured a lot more than the, its immediate subject. Trump took to Twitter to oppose what he said was Michigan's recent mailing of absentee ballots to the state's voters. This was done illegally and without authorization by a rogue secretary of state. I will ask to hold up funding to Michigan if they want to go down this voter fraud path, the president tweeted. But Michigan's secretary of state responded, hi, I also have a name. It's Jocelyn Benson. And we sent applications, not ballots, just like my GOP colleagues in Iowa, Georgia, Nebraska, and West Virginia. When Trump deleted his first inaccurate tweets about his ballots and corrected it with a second similar tweet, she responded, every Michigan registered voter has a right to vote by mail. I have the authority and responsibility to make sure that they know how to exercise this right, just like my GOP colleagues are doing in Georgia, Iowa, Nebraska, and West Virginia. Also, again, my name is Jocelyn Benson. Later today, Trump tried to threaten Nevada in a similar way. State of Nevada thinks that they can send out illegal vote by mail ballots, creating a great voter fraud scenario for the state and the U.S. They can't. If they do, I think. I think I can hold up funds for the state. Sorry, but you may not cheat in elections. And then you wrote, there's a lot encompassed in these tweets. Trump is running behind presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden in virtually every poll, and Michigan is crucial to his reelection prospects. But his problem is not mail-in ballots. Currently, the states of Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Washington, and Utah, as well as various counties in California, all have vote by mail. A mail-in system creates about a 2% increase in voting, but does not appear to benefit one party over another. Neither does it create measurable voter fraud, which remains vanishingly rare in our system. All right, you see Trump tweets this, uh, Benson tweets back. How do you decide to write about this? And then what is your approach to sort of deconstructing an issue like this? So uh, that's actually a really good question. So, so uh, it's interesting to hear that read back because I remember very little of writing any of that. Um, because it's worth remembering, I do have a full-time job, and I did just come out with a new book, which, as you know, the publicity for that is a full-time job. So when I used to have a column in a, in a magazine, I would write 1,200 words every other week, and it would wreck me. I would, um, I would not get dressed the entire next day. It would take me 12 hours to write. I would not get dressed the next day, and then I just would, you know, it would take forever to, to get my energy back. Now I'm writing about 1,200 words a night. And on top of everything else. So a lot of it is this, as I say, it's almost this transparency for what people want to know. I'm sort of processing for them. But my, it, to the degree I have a process is I read um, Twitter most of the day. And I have a number of sites that I check in on. And Twitter is really helpful because I follow a lot of really terrific politicians and writers. And you can see a number of stories getting, getting kicked up. Um, but in this case, uh, so I will sit there and I'll say, like, like here's a really important story. Like, like, like yesterday, I wrote about the Open Skies Treaty. And um, lots of people really didn't pay a lot of attention to that. But the Open Skies Treaty was huge over the Ukraine scandal because what it means is that Russia is going to be able to push into Ukraine. So I knew that was something I wanted to write about. But generally, I will look for something and then there will seem to be a pattern. And what jumped out with me about the, the um, Benson story was the fact she kept saying, I have a name. I have a name. Well, if you know, uh, especially African-American women's literature, you will know that most, no, I shouldn't say most, but many prominent African-American female writers 
begin their writing careers with an autobiography by saying, I have a name, call me by my name. And the fact that she kept reiterating that and not trying to hide, like you were talking about Marco Rubio, not being like, I'm little Rubio here, don't pay attention to me. She's saying, I not only want you to pay attention to me, I am insisting that you call me by name. That really jumped out at me. And so I wanted to focus on her. And then, um, and I liked the, the synergy of that interchange between them and everything it said about that moment. I did not expect that story to become as big as it did. It's, it's actually traveled quite far, but... Um, but when I write, the other thing that's important is when I write, I kind of have some ideas about what I'm going to write, but generally I don't start writing until at least 10 o'clock at night. And what I do is I sit here at my laptop in the very spot that I'm talking to you from, and I start to write, I write the date. And then almost always I put my head down on my arm beside the laptop and I fall sound asleep because I'm so exhausted by then. And my partner goes to sleep and the house is dark. There's just a light over me and I kind of groggily wake up about 1230 and think, oh my God, I'm so tired. I can't do this. And I fall back asleep for a little bit longer. And eventually I drag myself back upright and I start to write. And as I say, as I write, then I'm looking at, at the statistics like what's, and I sit there and I think about what I would want to know. How many states have mail-in voting? So then I Google how many states have mail-in voting. You know, what happened here? I Google it and I kind of put it together that way. And then literally at the end, um, you will note often there's not really any kind of a summary paragraph and like last night. And that is literally because on occasion I'm falling asleep sitting up and I'm just like, I have to go to bed. I don't know if this is coherent. And at least one column recently, I, I almost erased because I was like, I'm just so embarrassed that I'm even considering putting this out there. But then I know people wait to hear from me. So I'm like, oh, screw it. And I hit the send button and I went to bed and, um, and it, it, it went crazy. So I lost any ability to tell what is worth reading and what is not worth reading. I just kind of processed the day. You and Daniel Dale from CNN. I think Daniel Dale... Uh, has been invaluable, and I think you have been invaluable. So I'm glad you stay awake long enough to at least, you know, put out your material because it's it's been gold. It truly is gold. Well, it's so great to hear that because, like I say, I never intended to do this. This was this was literally sort of I'm panicked. Do I need to go to the emergency room from this bee bite or wasp sting to um, to now simply trying to to make sense of what happens during the day? There was never any plan. And it's clear that somehow I'm just able with my training and all that to say something valuable, but it was never, it, it just happened. I, I, I sort of feel like it's, it's, I, I happen to be in the right place at the right time and to be doing something useful. You have a book called how the South won the civil war and it comes out on March 12th, 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. And you're, you're now yet another author. I know who had a book come out at maybe the worst time in modern publishing history as far as just a vacuum sucking everything away. What has it been to have a book come out in the middle of a pandemic? Well, yeah, it's the funniest thing because I also came out with a book the week of 9-11. So you my, basically, I should stop writing. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's funny for me because I'll be honest, um, uh, I by the time the book came out, as you know, books take a while to go through production. I was so deep into the letters that I was kind of like, oh yeah, there's a book out there. And, um, and it, I also had to learn how to do Zoom for my classes because I'm teaching full time. And my reaction was once I learned Zoom, I'm like, oh my God, all, all of my readers are stuck at home with nothing to do. I'm going to go ahead and run a Zoom class for them. And I thought, well, I'll just do the first half of the US survey because I can do that in my sleep. And then I thought, well, on the other hand, I just came out with a book and I have 
you know, everything's been canceled. I'll just walk them through the book. So that turned into now I do these Facebook things um, uh, twice a week, once on popular questions about politics and once on the book. And, and now that's turned into a thing that I do these Facebook things. So for me, the book has, um, the, there's been very little line for me between the letters and the book. The book sell, is selling fine. The ideas are important. It's gotten great reviews. Um, I think I'm probably one of the lucky ones because my attention had been driven off the book before it even came out. And um, I sort of feel like I'm dragging it behind me now, but it's doing quite well on its own. So, Did you have a bunch of, were you supposed to go on this show and that show and that show and that, there's no show? Yeah. Yeah. But that's, like I say, in a way it's been, it's just different, you know, that, that I'm not doing, um, doing big in-person stuff, but you know, these, these zoom things reach an awful lot of people. So it's just different. And, you know, I get to do things like I was supposed to do something in, um, in Brooklyn last week or a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, because I couldn't be there in person, they said, Oh, who would you like to have do it? with you, interview you. And I'm like, well, I'd love to do something with Joanne Freeman. We've talked about doing things forever. And we did it and we planned it ahead of time and it went incredibly well. And now that's up on C-SPAN's running it. You know, it's all just sort of different than it was before. Yeah, um, really it's actually my hope that I will be able to start doing interviews myself um, with people whose books kind of got forgotten and put them on my, uh, on my I'm expanding the, the newsletter um, and do that. I just haven't had a chance to since the semester only just ended. You're a professor of BC, you've been there for a long time. What is it not to have the, um, the buzz of campus, of teaching in person, of the engagement? I mean, what has it been for you, sort of this isolation? I would just say it's different. It's not better or it's worse, it's different. We had to learn really quickly a whole bunch of new skills. Um, I, and I will say the thing that astonished me about it was, first of all, it's a lot of opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have had um, because you can do different things when you interact electronically that you can't do in person, but it takes so much time. I mean, I think that's the one thing that people aren't aware of is that normally when you're talking to students about papers, you can do, you know, every 10, 15, you know, it takes everyone 10 or 15 minutes. You do it over Zoom, planning the meeting, going to the meeting, talking things through. It just, your whole day is spent looking at a screen. So, um, so I really, really miss the interaction. I miss sort of the moving around. Remember, we're used to moving all the time from class to class, from building to building, you know, around. And now we just sit in a single room. But it hasn't been, um, it hasn't been, for me, it hasn't been terrible. It's stretched me in a lot of ways. And I'm actually hoping in the fall that we will not be, at least in one of my classes, I don't, I'm hoping that we are not fully in person because I would like to do a hybrid course. There's a lot of skills I'd like my students to get through um, through the uh, electronic communications that I'd like them to learn and then hope to transfer into in person so we can do both. So, um, you know, it's just different. It's not, I'm not, I'm, I'm an agnostic. It is what it is. We need yeah. to keep people safe and we need to solve this. And me complaining about it's not gonna help very much. Final, final question. Joe Biden says to you, Heather, who should I have as my running mate? It's uh, so funny you say that because, um, of course, I have ideas about that. But I will say two things. First of all, it's really important that you understand that you're electing a team, not one man. A lot of Democrats forget that. It's also important to remember that there's a lot of calculation that goes into this. So, um, for example, do you really want um, um, Elizabeth Warren to leave a Senate seat 
uh, you know, powerful woman to lead that Senate seat when there's a Republican governor in Massachusetts? Yeah, maybe not so much. There's a lot of calculations that go into the, the vice presidential position that otherwise might not, uh, or that, that people may not be aware of. And the other piece uh, to be aware of, of course, is that Joe Biden is, I'm so sorry, six million years old. And whoever is his vice president is in a natural stepping place to, to or at, at a natural, on a natural stepping stone to step into the presidency. So for me, age really matters. Um, so who would I look at once you've taken those things into consideration? He's got a lot of really good options. And I think people need to be looking more widely than they are. Um, the obvious place to go would be to uh, Kamala Harris, for example. But do you really want her in the White See, I wouldn't want her in the White House uh, if I could have her at AG, except for the fact it looked like she could step into the presidency. But you also look at people like Susan Rice. Susan Rice brings to the table a lot of national security, uh, obviously tons of national security experience. I guess where I'm going with this is I'm kind of an agnostic because you need to see, you need to see the internals. What can these people bring to the ticket with under the parameters that I have just, um, just outlined? And I don't know the answer to that because I don't know what their internals look like. I guess the bottom line is I don't care. I keep saying to people, we could swing a cat in a bar room and come up with better than we've got right now. And my qualifications for both the president and the vice president right now are anybody who can fog a mirror. And even that is negotiable for me at this point. We'll be driving down the street. And I say this, no sarcasm. I'll be driving down the street and I'll say to my kids, I'll say, pick anyone on this street anyone in any car, I will take my shot with that person over Trump as president. And I'm not lying about that. I would totally. take anyone. Totally. Because most people would know to ask, even if, even if they didn't know how to do it themselves, they would know to ask the right people. And most of us are pretty competent, at least in our own fields and, and recognize competency in others. Do you think he loses? Uh, I think there are a lot of factors going in here. I, and I think the way to answer that is in a free and fair election, as, as we know, or they would not be manipulating the system, the Republicans would absolutely go down in flames, not only at the White House level, but also throughout Congress. Uh, the question is, is it going to be a free and fair election? And that's what I keep pushing for people to do is insist, insist on mail-in balloting, insist on fair counts, because if we, and insist on, um, on getting rid of the voter suppression laws, because without a free and fair vote, it's really a question of who cheats the most. Well, that's a depressing way to go out. <laughs> well, wait a minute. So let's end on a more positive note. As Please. I say, we have certainly been in a position like this before on a number of occasions where it looked like American democracy was going down in flames. And in each one of those occasions, American people stepped up to the plate and took back their country. And that is what keeps me up at four o'clock in the morning writing these letters. I want to thank today's guest, Heather Cox Richardson, for joining me at Two Riders Sing and Yang. You can follow Heather on Twitter at HC underscore Richardson and read her work on her Facebook page and at heathercoxrichardson.substack.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sing and Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the Dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.